0: Tonight we are having our ministry fair, and that's it's an important time for us. I'm going to be um, talking a little bit about that, and just a quick plug. Many of our faithful uh, children's church leaders they do a terrible thing. They have babies. And what that does is puts them on the shelf for a while as far as being useful in children's ministry. So sometimes we need others to, uh, to step in. So tonight, when you have the opportunity to sign up for children's ministry, um, this is what, in Texas, we used to call shooting fish in the barrel evangelism. They're unsaved, they're trapped, and they believe every word you say. You can't get better than that. So sign up for children's ministry and lead little ones to Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and just as a review, in the introductory message to this series that we're in right now, in John 10 and 11, we've made an extensive case that as believers in Christ, we're to be very wary of what we've called Christian mysticism, of seeking some sort of revelation from God that's beyond the all-sufficient scriptures. And in church circles today, as we've pointed out, Sarah Young's book, Jesus Calling, and subsequent books that she's written, they've been a huge culprit in misleading the Church of Jesus Christ into mystical experience. It's based on nothing other than her imagination. She claims to be passing on the messages that Jesus himself gave to her, but as we have in the past weeks given extensive proof of, that the the Jesus of Jesus Calling is nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is is strong and is powerful. The Jesus of Jesus Calling is really more of a therapeutic counselor and nothing more. The Jesus of Jesus Calling is nothing more than a deceptive spirit that has spoken to Sarah Young, and we have made this case very carefully. And so I'm not going to repeat all of that today. I'm not going to keep hammering that point home. But if this is your first message in the series, and I just destroyed your whole quiet times every day because you're having your quiet times and Jesus calling, and you're saying, you're calling Jesus, calling heresy. Yes, we are. Go back and listen to the first message and, and you'll explain uh, find that explained well. The book does have a good use. You can actually get two coffee cups on it at one time. It makes a really good coaster. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had nothing to do with Jesus' calling. And so that begs the question, if this book that has sold 20 million copies and is deceiving the church all over the place it begs the question, well, what about the real Jesus calling? What about the real voice of Christ? And so that's what we've been examining here in John 10 and now John 11, which has numerous references to the voice of Christ, that his sheep hear his voice, that his sheep know him when he calls. And so we've called this series in John 10 and 11, the real Jesus calling, hearing the actual voice of Christ. And the actual voice of Christ is found in the pages of Scripture and is so much better, so much more accurate than anything that a human being's imagination can come up with. This is not the Jesus of the fanciful, feminine, romantic imagination of Sarah Young. But this is the Son of God, who is God the Son, presented in all his splendor and all his majesty. And the actual voice of Christ is is so much more appealing, so much more desirable than any faked version of Jesus. So far, we've heard in John chapter 10, the voice of the only way, the voice of the good shepherd, the voice of a mighty defender, the voice of spiritual reason, and now in chapter 11, we're venturing into one of the most exciting and I think just heart-shaking chapters in all of the Bible, and certainly in the Gospel of John, the account of raising Lazarus from the dead. Today, we'll consider verses 1 through 16, and the voice of Christ we'll hear today is the voice of a glorified Son. The voice of a glorified son. The picture of Jesus in Jesus' calling is that he exists to give me spiritual and emotional goosebumps. That's why Jesus is in existence, to create an emotional experience, to focus all of his attention on me and on my life and on my circumstances, that that's really why he is here. Now, to be very fair, our faith in Christ should, and it does create an emotional experience. There's nothing like worshiping him. I don't know how you can sing the song we just sang together without emotion. There's such joy and delight in Christ. He does take care of his own. He is our spiritual eldest brother who has saved those who would place place their faith in him and has promised to faithfully care for us all the way to heaven. But there's a difference between the Jesus of Jesus calling and the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of Jesus' calling in no way presents Christ as being about his own glory. The Jesus of Jesus' calling is all about me. But in Scripture, the Father desires to glorify the Son just for the sake of glorifying the Son. And then there's a bigger picture that we'll get into in a minute. And I would venture to say this morning that your picture of Jesus needs to get bigger. It needs to become more vast. It needs to be more enormous. It needs to be more infinite. We need to have more respect and awe and wonder and astonishment. And yes, I'm going to use the word fear of Christ. And it must grow and grow and grow. And my hope for you and for me is that you are like the Apostle Peter. His his first account with Christ was a very casual meeting. A couple of years later, this led to seeing the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Christ walk on water, and finally watching as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, ascends into heaven. As a matter of fact, the last written words of the Apostle Peter really shouldn't surprise us. He exhorts us in 2 Peter three eighteen, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. His last word is grow in what you know of Christ. Grow in how vast, how infinite, how amazing he is. And so our text this morning really serves as an introduction to the coming resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. We are now reaching the very end of the ministry of Jesus. His death on the cross is coming right around the corner. It's just coming right down the pike here. And the real theme of our text this morning is the glory of Christ, the glory being brought to him as we hear the voice of a glorified son. And What I'd like to do is just divide this text very simply. I want to give you three ways that Christ receives glory in this passage. Three ways that Christ receives glory in this passage. And the first way that he receives glory is by demonstrating his sovereignty. By demonstrating his sovereignty. And we'll just let the text unfold as we go. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Now, let me just take a side note here to give you a theological Bible reading tip. And that tip is that when a passage begins, a certain man, you should get really excited. You have to understand that when any passage in the Bible begins, a certain man, something big is about to happen. There's going to be an event. There's going to be a record of the event that's here to demonstrate the sovereignty, the power, the might and the wisdom of God. For example, the certain man of Judges chapter 13 turns out to be the father of Samson, the mighty judge. The certain man of 1 Samuel 1 turns out to be the father of Samuel, the great prophet and judge. The certain man of the parallel accounts of 1 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 18 is the anonymous enemy soldier that God would use to kill and judge King Saul with a randomly shot arrow in God's judgment of this wicked king. The certain man of Matthew 26 is the owner of the house in which the very first Lord's Supper will be served. And there's many others. So whenever you get to a place in the Bible that says a certain man, you should be excited because God is at work. God is demonstrating that things are happening, big things, important things, things that you should note. And in this case, Lazarus, the certain man, is the means by which Christ will be glorified and create yet another of many dozens of reasons in the Gospel of John to believe in him through what I consider one of the most spectacular resurrections in all of the Bible. This was a delayed resurrection. This is one that happens later after death. And so Lazarus becomes an exciting focus here in this text. Now we have three adult siblings listed here. We have Lazarus, And that's really a nickname. It's the shortened form of Eleazar, which means whom God helps. Very appropriate for Lazarus. He would need his name. This Lazarus is mentioned in all the Bible, only here in John 11 and then also in John chapter 12. There is a Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. That's a different guy, different person, different situation. And then you have Mary and her sister Martha. They're also written about in Luke chapter 10. Martha was the older of the two. She had an Aramaic name, which means lady in the sense of an aristocratic lady. And then Mary was really more of a common name. It's just the Greek form of the Hebrew Miriam. And I point this out because these three siblings are really fairly typical of the Hebrew society at the time in, in which... Um, they've been permeated by various cultures, by Hellenism, by, by even Babylonian culture and so forth. Lazarus is a Hebrew name, Martha is an Aramaic name, and Mary is a Greek name. And so they're very international in, in flavor here. And unusually, these siblings live together. There's no mention of, of spouses. There's no mention of their parents. It seems that they are their only family. And they lived in a village called Bethany. Now, this can be a little confusing. One of the reasons that I believe the Bible is the word of God is because it doesn't try to rescue us from geographic and name confusion. Jesus told a story about a guy named Lazarus that we often confuse with this guy, Lazarus. And there are at least two villages of Bethany in New Testament times. So this is not the one mentioned in John chapter 1. This is a different Bethany. This one is just outside the city of Jerusalem. It's about two miles away on the Jericho Road, just on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And in fact, today, the town is called El Azaria in memory of Lazarus. And so there's still a, an ongoing cultural memory of Lazarus there. And then we get this little footnote about Mary in verse 2. You almost could put this in parentheses. It was Mary who appointed, uh, anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we get this little historical note. But what's interesting is in the course of the narrative, that hasn't actually happened yet. That happens in the next chapter, in chapter 12. And in fact, just so you understand what he's referring to, look with me at chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, now we're right before the death of Christ. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Sorry, I gave away the ending there. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then, of course, it goes on to say that Judas Iscariot didn't like this, and, and he thought that, that they should have saved the money for the poor, which really was his way of saying, I could have stolen some of that money. And Jesus said in verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, chapter 11 puts this in as a note, as a, as a footnote, before the event actually happens. And what does this tell us? It tells us that the original readers of the Gospel of John, remember the Gospel of John was written to those Jews who were alive all over the world after 70 AD, after the destruction of Jerusalem, after all of the prophecies of Christ regarding that coming judgment had come true. And yet these readers, decades after this happened, they're already familiar with the story. They already know about Mary. They already know about Martha. They already know about Lazarus. Why? Because this was a family devoted to Christ. And before this incident was ever recorded in writing, the church knew about it. The church had been told the story over and over again. This is a family devoted to Jesus, a home where he's so very welcomed, he's so loved, and where they adored him, they worshiped him. Listen, Mary poured out a small fortune to anoint the feet of Jesus. She's treating him as a king, and she's bowing down before him as God. And so this is great testimony that the glory of Christ is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be worshipped. And so that little footnote isn't just an historical note. It's a reminder that those who love Christ bow down before him and worship him and sacrifice for him. But then we get back to the story and in the hour of great need that these two sisters have when their brother Lazarus is ill. In verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They've sent word to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is very sick, sick enough to eventually die, obviously. Why did Jesus love him so much? Why is he able to have that, that relationship with him? because Jesus is consistent with what he had already previously publicly proclaimed. Matthew 12, verse 50, he said, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, believing that he is God in the flesh, the Messiah of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, would become his family. And they believed. And they had no problem sending for Jesus because they knew that Lazarus is dying and Jesus is his only hope. They sent for Jesus because they knew and they believed his healing power. And so certainly Jesus is going to come running to his friend in need. He's going to drop everything that he's doing, right? Wrong. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, and you can almost hear just kind of this like passive voice here. "Eh, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. It almost has the feeling of just a side comment. And when Jesus receives this news, Lazarus is still alive, and he says this illness does not lead to death. This is very similar, by the way, to his statement in Matthew 9, 24, about the dead daughter of Jairus. He he said that she's not dead, she's just asleep. What he means here is he's not denying that Lazarus is about to die. He's just saying that's not going to be the end result. This is not a big deal. But I do want to say this. This verse is the key to unlocking the entire chapter. This is it. The phrase, "It is for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified through it." This is the crux of the whole account. This is the whole point that this is here. This is the whole point this incident has been has been divinely set up and orchestrated and planned by God in his sovereignty to demonstrate the glory of Christ. And by the way, this verse explains something much, much bigger than just John chapter 11, and I'll explain that in a little while. But this is very reminiscent of just two chapters earlier, the beginning of the account of the man who was born blind, who came to faith in Christ and who was healed as, as proof that he had he had come to faith in Christ. And, and we see at the very beginning of the chapter As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, and this is very similar here, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That was the whole point of this. And and we made the case then that everything in our lives is so that the work of God might be displayed And in John's gospel here, the manifestation of the glory of God leads men to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. That God asks us to have faith, but I will say this, it's faith based in mountains of evidence. Uh, Jesus isn't just some guy making wild claims. He's some guy making wild claims, backing them up with impeccable qualifications. Absolutely backing them up. And we're reminded what the entire point of the Gospel of John is. It's all the way at the very end of the book, in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Just listen. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, what? These signs, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's the whole point of this book The glory of Christ, the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ, so that you might believe on Christ, believe on Christ, believe on Christ. And this chapter is no different. These first four verses, look at how they glorify Christ by demonstrating his sovereignty as God, who is fully God. And just think of everything that had to happen for these four verses to happen. In earlier years, he got to know this family of siblings. That was his plan. He chose them for salvation, and they believed he developed a relationship with them such that they felt comfortable, asking him, "Hey, can you interrupt everything you 're doing to come to my house?" He had worked through even some bad feelings that had developed between the sisters the time he came to their home and you remember that Martha got mad at Mary and they had, he had to he had to separate those two sisters there. He already sovereignly knew about the illness of Lazarus he already sovereignly knew the outcome he already sovereignly knew the reason for the illness. And by the way, this is not God just passively standing by saying, well, there's a reason for everything. That's the lamest sort of comfort you can give. It's not just that there's a reason for everything. It's that God is actively involved and causing and making happen the reason for everything. He's moving every piece and every part of this drama. Not only does he know the reason for the incident, he's carefully orchestrated it. And if we could put it in dramatic terms, when the messengers that Mary and Martha sent to find Jesus, and he was a long ways away, came, Jesus could have, if he had wanted to, let's say they're coming right through that door, he could have looked at his watch and said, three, two, one, here they come. Because it was all orchestrated. It was all planned. And the foregone conclusion is that what's going to happen here is nothing short of spectacular. The raising of Lazarus from the dead all because of the sovereignty of God is demonstrated through Christ. So the first way that Christ receives glory in this text by demonstrating his sovereignty. He's totally in charge. Second way Christ receives glory, not only demonstrating his sovereignty, but by declaring his love. By declaring his love. Now in the next few verses, Jesus is going to declare his love for three sets of people. And you have to kind of look carefully to find them here, but the first set of people... We will just call them the sibling family here, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is actually kind of an unusual structure here. The, the verse is very careful to detail the love has, Jesus has for each individual family member. Each has come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a general, I really like that family. It's, I love Lazarus. I love Martha. I love Mary. And now this presents to us really an amazing combination. When you put this verse in the context of what's happening, that Lazarus is dying and he's about to die. We have this tremendous truth that God and God alone, A, can allow suffering while B, still loving you, and C, acting on your behalf for His glory. All of those combined. This isn't a case of like the Pharaoh of old, in which God did get glory for himself, but he just did it very simply. He just decimated Pharaoh's army to get glory. This is this is more complicated. This is a case in which God simultaneously loves you, allows pain, and provides help for you, but not just for you, for his glory and for his honor. Don't think that God is bound by the choice to either glorify himself or be loving and kind. He does all of the above. He accomplishes one through the other. Now, the very next verse begins with the word so. This is what's called a logical inferential conjunction. I know that blesses your heart to know that. What it means, it just means therefore. It's it's causative. It means that since A is the case, B is what I'm going to do. So therefore, since he loved Martha... And loved Mary and loved Lazarus, verse six. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That is not what we expect at all. I mean, when we as elders or as our member care team, when we get a call that somebody is deathly ill and on on heaven's doorstep, we don't say, "Wow, isn't that great? We'll pray for him. We'll be there in a few days." No, we need to go now. It's an emergency. And this is amazing because this is a, a rare glimpse of a behind-the-scenes look at the mind of God. Do you ever see a show on TV that's a stage show and sometimes you accidentally catch the guys in the background who, who dress like they just had pizza and they're moving things around and they weren't supposed to be on camera? Well, we get to have the scenes pulled back of how God works in our lives. And it sounds like this. Since God loves you so much... He's waiting longer to answer your prayers. Since God loves you so much, He's letting you get hammered by a disease or a hardship. Since God loves you so much, He took His time coming to your aid. Since God loves you so much, He did the opposite of what you prayed for. The stage of heaven is staged by God, not by us. He is in charge, and He shows His love in ways that maybe we don't expect. We have to understand something which gives us the answer to why sometimes God does other than what we often ask for. The love of Christ for Lazarus is very real. It's very active. But here's what we have to understand. The love of Christ for Lazarus was not the driving force behind this. It is the glory of Christ that's the driving motivation for Jesus' response. He's not just going to help Lazarus. That's his second priority. He is going to help Lazarus. But he is going to, more importantly, Be glorified. By the way, a great way to pray is for God to do that which would most glorify Himself. He will always answer that prayer, and you, by the way, will find the most contentment in that answer. Whatever God does to glorify Himself, that ought to be your greatest concern. So, not only does Jesus declare His love for the sibling family, there's a a second set of people He loves His own disciples. His own disciples, verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now we have to explain a little bit of geography here. Verse 6 refers to the place where he was. That is a reference back to chapter 10, verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. So that gives us some geographic clues. What this means is that the place Jesus is is a hundred miles north of the place that Lazarus is. They are far away from one another. And now Jesus has supernatural knowledge that Lazarus has died. And he says, let us go to Judea again. Let us go south. Let us travel that hundred miles. Since a day's travel was about 20 to 30 miles, this explains verse 17 that Jesus arrived four days after Lazarus had died. When did he say, let us go to Judea again? Probably the moment Lazarus died. Okay, it's time to go. But this makes his disciples, the future apostles of the church, it makes them a little bit nervous. You remember what had just happened in Judea, in Jerusalem? Chapter 10, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, to stone Jesus. Verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And so they expressed their concern, and I like to picture them with quavering voices and fake smiles. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? They're just clarifying. Now, you know that's where they were trying to kill you, right? Before we get on the road here, and the implication is a concern for guilt by association. Look, if they're coming after you, it's just a matter of time before we're next, and we're going to be killed as well. And so Jesus gives this interesting and very comforting and very loving answer. In verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He's referring to twelve hours in the day. That's the average length of daylight. And to the Jewish mind, and frankly, to the Romans as well, they said that their work day was 12 hours. On average, that's what they worked. When it's dark, it's time to stop working. When it gets light, it's time to start working. It's a very simple system. And Jesus, who is the light of the world, he is the daylight. He's comforting his disciples that while he's with them, while he's there, while they're walking in the daylight, they're going to be fine. He says, nothing's going to happen to you. You're with me. And I thought about this a couple of days ago when I was reading this and and thinking of how he comforted them and offered them such safety. Hypothetically speaking, and let's put our, our eschatology aside just for a moment. Hypothetically speaking, if Jesus Christ was suddenly standing out in the parking lot, do you realize that what we're doing right now would suddenly be so irrelevant? I would become the most important per- unimportant person in this room. I couldn't say another word. And it could be dangerous because we'd all be trying to trample each other to get outside. Actually, what I would do is I would say, let's close in silent prayer. And I would sneak out while your <laughs> eyes are closed. But do you understand that word would get out? Every true believer in town would be here. And in a matter of minutes, there would be tens of thousands of people. Why is this? Because being with Jesus, we instinctively know, is the best and the safest and the most sheltered place there is. And so he's saying, guys, you're with me. Don't worry about it. What comfort and what love Jesus expresses to his disciples and how much glory this brings to him. He is glorified by his love. But there's a third set of people for whom Jesus declares his love. The unsaved, the lost souls who need Christ. The comfort that Jesus gives in verses 9 and 10, it really has a bigger feel to it than just his disciples. He speaks of those who do not have the light of Christ. The, the bigger message is that Christ, the light of the world, should be sought while he's in the world, while the light is on, while grace is here, while the kingdom is being offered, while the darkness is temporarily pushed back in the presence of Christ Jesus. Jesus. And once again, we see a great similarity to John chapter 9 and the man born blind. John chapter 9, verse 4, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the call to salvation of Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is the call to salvation from 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, where the Apostle Paul is quoting Isaiah 49. In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the call three times found in the book of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It is illogical and it is the most dangerous thing any unbeliever can do to say, let me think about Christ. Let me give it some thought. The most logical thing to do is to run to the cross and run to our Savior. And Jesus is saying, the light is here. I'm here. Now is the time. How glorious Christ is to declare his love in these widening circles of just a single family and then his disciples and then literally all of the unsaved lost souls who need his forgiveness. Christ receives glory by declaring his sovereignty, by demonstrating his sovereignty, rather, by declaring his love. And finally, he receives glory by developing our faith. By developing our faith. In verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, if you've read the New Testament or heard preaching from the New Testament, the euphemism for death, of being like sleep, that's very familiar to you. It's not speaking of actually losing your consciousness. This is not soul sleep. It's just a metaphor for death. But Jesus now has reintroduced this euphemism since verse 12 is going to show his disciples took him literally. And it is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament. I say reintroduced because they didn't get it. They didn't understand Kings and Chronicles speaks of a person having slept with his fathers, meaning that he died. Job 14 speaks of death as an irrevocable sleep. Daniel 12, verse 2, speaks of those who sleep being awakened in resurrection. Now, I just want to point something out. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Does that sound as comforting to you as it does to me? The the ease and the casualness with which Jesus speaks of the death of Lazarus. And he just very simply says, but I go to awaken him. I'm going to go wake him up. But at this point, the disciples are concerned. Uh, You and I know how the story goes. That Lazarus had died, but they don't understand that yet. And in verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And you might ask, why are they saying that? The disciples aren't Pointing out that Lazarus, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to get better. They're pointing out if Lazarus has merely fallen asleep, he's going to get better, which means we don't have to go back to that place where everybody hates you and is trying to kill you. Is probably going to kill us too. I mean, it's it's like they're saying, "Oh, great, Whoo. all's well that ends well." What's for dinner? And we're going back to Judea, aren't we? They're scared. And so Jesus clarifies for them in no uncertain terms, just to make sure that they pop that little fantasy bubble. Verse 14, and Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And look at this way Jesus is glorifying himself. He's going to use the, the death of Lazarus to strengthen the faith of the men who in mere months will be responsible for leading the entire world to faith in Jesus Christ. These are the men who will perform signs and wonders in confirmation of the gospel messages that they carry. These are the men who will need to have perfect faith in Christ. They alone will represent Christ, just 12 of them. This is what the Apostle Paul proclaimed to the church at Corinth. He said in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so in one of his last opportunities to strengthen their faith, to develop their faith, to bolster their trust in him, Christ is going to glorify himself by giving them faith, to make them more steadfast in their trust. He's going to go to the mouth of the lion of death, and he's going to pluck Lazarus out with the mere call of his voice. And how do we know that this is his purpose? Verse 15 He says, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so he's doing this for them to strengthen them, because in in mere months, they won't have Jesus physically walking around with them. They will be alone. Obviously, God will send the Holy Spirit, but they won't have these these immediate lessons. They're going to have to remember the lessons they've learned. And so he glorifies himself by developing their faith. And then this odd little verse gets stuck right here. It's almost like a footnote. In verse 16, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Not die with Lazarus, but die with Christ. Because they're going back to the place where people have been trying to kill him. And here's our old friend Thomas. He's also called Didymus. That's the Greek word for twin, so it's actually redundant twin the twin. Thomas means twin. Didymus means twin. He's often very unfairly labeled. What is he labeled? Doubting Thomas, right? Poor guy for 2,000 years. He doubted that the Lord had been resurrected, as we will see in John 20. But I think it'd be more accurate to label him sensitive Thomas and loving Thomas for his intense love for the Lord, the terrible grief at the loss of Christ, at the death of Christ. He's barely mentioned in the other Gospels. The other Gospels only mention him one time each. But in John, he gets seven mentions, and he is important to the story. And so he's introduced to us here for the first time. Now, Thomas epitomizes what true, devoted, faithful love for the Lord really looks like. It's someone who's willing to die for Christ, willing to die with Christ. Now, admittedly, he is very pessimistic, He's basically saying, if we go to Judea, we're all going to die. That's it. Let's just go. But he's willing to. He's willing to. He's negative. He's pessimistic. He probably has a dark personality, but he's willing to die for Christ. Now, I want to point out that Thomas responds to all three aspects of the glory of Christ. He trusts the sovereign plan of Christ. If it is your plan for us to go to Judea and to die, then I'll do it. I'll trust. He returns Christ's love by being willing to lay down his own life. There's no hesitation. And he's strengthened in his faith. If the plan to die is to die, then he'll do it. He has the faith to do it. Now, Thomas would have a chance at the arrest of Jesus to die for the Lord, but like all the other Disciples, they would fail to stand by the Lord for a time, and this is so the prophecy of Zechariah 13, 7 would be fulfilled, that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep would be scattered. But after the ascension of Christ into heaven, Thomas would faithfully carry the gospel to the world for the sake of Christ. He arrived in India in 52 A.D., and he would be the first to bring the gospel to multiple parts of that nation. For a brief time, he landed on the, on the northern, uh, northern coast, the northwestern coast. And then he went to the southwestern coast near modern-day Kerala, and he planted seven churches there. He proclaimed the gospel, he planted churches, and, by the way, built church buildings with funds raised by those seven churches made up of new believers A 17th century history of Thomas written by a descendant of one of his first converts is called Toma Parvom, the Songs of Thomas, claims that Thomas first ministered to the Jews that had settled in India and saw a small revival. Forty of them were converted. But then the account goes on to say that 3,000 Brahmin Hindus came to faith in Christ because of the preaching of Thomas. Thomas had his own Pentecost. He proclaimed the gospel so faithfully. He proclaimed the gospel, built churches for two decades before giving his life at the hands of jealous Hindu priests who speared him to death on December 21st, 72 AD. Now, we can kind of chuckle at Thomas' statement, let us go also that we may die with him. But in reality, that's exactly what he did. Thomas is proof that Jesus was successful in glorifying himself by developing the faith of the disciples. But Thomas is really just a side note. Lazarus is the focus of this text as the means by which Christ will glorify himself. Look back with me again at verse 4, if you would. Verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, "This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it." I said earlier that John eleven four is the crux of all of John chapter eleven. It explains the chapter. I also said that John chapter four, John chapter eleven verse four explains something much much bigger than that. And here's what it is: John eleven verse four explains the goal of God's plan for mankind. It explains the entire story of the Bible. It explains the goal of every book of the Bible. It explains the reason Israel exists and will exist again in glorified form. It explains these heathens and pagans that God has saved and turned into the church of Jesus Christ. It explains why countless worshipers, even now as we speak, inhabit heaven, and will someday inhabit new earth and new heaven. John eleven four 4 explains everything. Listen, there's a theme that is very carefully and artistically woven throughout Scripture, a theme concerning the redemptive plan of God for mankind, that the redemptive plan of God for mankind, listen carefully, is not the end goal. The redemptive plan of God for mankind is the means to achieve his goal, which is for God the Father to glorify and magnify God the Son so that God the Son in return will glorify and magnify God the Father. That is the goal. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 6, As for me, this is God the Father, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What is this? This is God the father glorifying God the son so that God the son can glorify God the father. Psalm 24 speaks of the future return of Christ, beginning in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. This is the Son of God. And that question, who is he? Who is he? Who is he that keeps happening? It's answered in verse 10, who is this King of glory? And the answer is the Lord Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now you have Yahweh named as the Father, Yahweh named as the Son, an inextricable link between God the Father, God the Son, God the Father glorifying God the Son so that God the Son can return glory to God the Father. Are you catching the theme? In John 17, In Jesus' great high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. God the Father glorifying God the Son so that God the Son might return glory to God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 and following. Very familiar to you. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is that the end of the verse? To the glory of God the Father. God the Father glorifying God the Son, so that God the Son might return glory to God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 describes the end of the millennial kingdom of Christ. Revelation 20 tells us that although Christ is ruling on earth, there will be one great final battle, followed by the judgment of all the unsaved and all the demons and Satan, and then we get ready for the final kingdom state into eternity, and what happens? After Christ has been glorified as the King of kings and Lord of lords and destroyed all of his enemies, even the enemy of death, what happens next? First Corinthians 15:24 tells us, "Then comes the end when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power." Verse 28, "When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all." In other words, All of redemptive history is pointing to God the Father glorifying God the Son so that God the Son might return glory to God the Father. That's what it's all about. And what happens then? Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What is this? This is the consummation of God the Father, glorifying God the Son, so that God the Son might return glory to God the Father. Or, as Jesus just said, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God the Father, glorifying God the Son, so that God the Son might return glory to the Father. The account of Lazarus is the same as your life. If you have received Christ as your Savior, God is, unless you're in the final generation, God is going to let you die. This is part of his sovereign plan, but he loves you, and he will be the one to awaken you Who's the first face you're going to see in resurrection? I believe Christ's. And verse eleven is you. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Our friend, insert your name, has fallen asleep. But I go, that is Christ, I go to awaken him. This is what first Thessalonians four thirteen teaches us. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do who have no hope. Four verses later, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. That's the real Jesus calling, by the way. The cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He will awaken us. And like Lazarus, Jesus will raise his followers from the dead. Now, unlike Lazarus, you only have to do it once. It's been said that the last words of Lazarus were, here we go again. But Lazarus exists for us as proof, proof. How do you think Lazarus felt the second time he was about to die? I think he was cool as a cucumber because he'd already been there. Do you understand that you can be Lazarus? You can approach the moment of your death with a smile and say, watch this. All I have to do is die and Christ himself will wake me up. In 1873, the names of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were discovered on a tomb in Bethany. They are with the Lord. Their bodies await resurrection to perfect eternal life with Christ. All to the glory of Christ so that he might give glory to the Father. You are not the reason. You are the means to that end. Do we understand that? We are the means to the glory of Christ. Our Father, we thank you for Christ, and we are so privileged and blessed to be part of your glorious plan. You already possess all glory. You possess all honor. You possess all power, all wisdom, all might, all knowledge. You own everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All mankind, all animal kind, all possessions, the universe, the planets, the moons, the stars, they're all yours. And yet, to give a gift of a kingdom to your son, which he would turn around and give back to you as a gift, you've set in motion this amazing plan that began with creation, the allowance in your sovereignty of the fall of mankind into sin, without you ever touching sin, you remaining completely holy, completely unblemished, the sending of Jesus Christ as the Savior for all that he has chosen to believe, so that for all of eternity, not only does the intrinsic value, the the natural value of God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit magnify itself through all eternity. Not only is the intrinsic value and glory of God magnified, but now to have a new earth in a new heaven and a new Jerusalem with millions upon millions upon millions of glorified worshipers made in the image of God first, made in the image of Christ next, to extol and to sing and to shout and to glorify the name of Jesus Christ, at whose name every knee will bow. And so, Lord, it is for His glory that we gather. It is His glory, for His glory that we live, that we breathe, that we have our being. And I pray, Lord, that we would be more mindful of the glory of Christ with every word that comes out of our mouth, with every thought that we think, with every deed that we do. And Lord, if there's any here who may be uncertain, that they have fallen on their knees before the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, if they hear your voice, let them not harden their hearts. And might today be the day when the Holy Spirit moves and brings them to repentance, so that they might be sorry for their sins and receive Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And for those who know Christ, we pray, Lord, to be more mindful of his glory, to have his glory be our chief concern so that we might be honorable before him and be pleasing to our Savior. For it is in his name we pray.